Real quick, I gotta let you in on a testing secret. With regulations and breaches on the rise, production data is no longer safe or legal for developers to use. And creating test data in-house is a complex chore that eats away valuable time. That's where Tonic comes in. They make it possible to create a true mirror of production by safely and realistically mimicking production data. So you can work on real product and steer clear of surprises at release time. Learn more at tonic.ai slash code story. I like to think of what is the dumbest thing I can possibly do to solve the problem. And I start with that and I ask myself, hey, does it need to be more complex than this? What I said was, listen, we need a roadmap. I'm pretty sure that's just a prioritized list of stuff to do. Why don't we just make a big dumb list of everything we have to do and sort it by priority order and then do those things in that order. And so that's effectively the process that we ran. So step one was we solicited pitches from everyone in the organization. So whether you were the CEO all the way down to the person who was just hired, who's working on marketing, we received 300 different pitches for projects. I'm Pete Hunt, CEO at Dagster Labs. This is Code Story. A podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Took six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the backhand. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. Took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labpart, and today, how Pete Hunt is enabling you to manage data assets and ship your pipelines with extraordinary velocity. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Pete Hunt grew up in Northeast Massachusetts, which he mentions was culturally New Hampshire. He wasn't into hockey, but did a lot of swimming, in particular the 200-meter butterfly. He has a two-year-old daughter and loves to play guitar in his cover band. Pete was one of the founding team members of React, and his friend and colleague, Nick, was one of the creators of GraphQL. Post-Facebook, Nick wanted to figure out what was next and wanted to build something impactful. After interviewing some folks, he realized that managing data and data pipelines was a challenge that needed to be solved, and Pete joined later to eventually lead the charge. This is the creation story of Dagster. The company is called Daxter Labs. 
We used to be called Elemental. And we make Dagster, which is an open source data orchestrator. If you read the box, that's what it says. It's a Python library framework and system for building and operating data pipelines. Every business of any reasonable size these days is data-driven to some extent, right? So you have executives that are looking at dashboards, trying to make business decisions. You've got products that have data embedded in them. So think of Netflix, for example, has a recommendation system. Many e-commerce sites have something similar. Data is the lifeblood of a lot of these businesses. They wouldn't be able to operate without data. You start to see the rise of data practitioners, so data scientists, data analysts, data engineers, who are responsible for delivering this data on time, at quality, so that people can make decisions and deliver products. There are these things called data pipelines, which take in data at one end, they do a bunch of magic, and then they spit out process data at the other end. There are a bunch of different source systems for data. You could think of, for example, your payments provider, your inventory management system, your ERP system, whatever it is. That source data goes into the pipeline. The pipeline does some transformation, so it combines it, it filters it, tests it, etc. And the nice, clean, pristine data that's usable by the business comes out the other end. Now, in that pipeline is a lot of engineering work that has to be done. We think that Dagster is the best way for data engineers to do that data engineering work that produces those data assets. I was at Facebook pre-IPO, so I joined the company in 2010. I met this guy there, Nick Schrock. I was working on a, on a successful open source project called React at the time. I was one of the, the founding members of that team. And Nick, what at the same time, was creating co-creating GraphQL. And so we were sitting next to each other at the office, and we got to know each other. We went our separate ways for a number of years, and Nick spent longer, a longer period of time at Facebook than I did, but he left and wanted to figure out what to do next. He wanted to do something that was really impactful to something that was really kind of part of the bedrock of society, right? Like Facebook, I don't know if people would necessarily agree that it is like fundamental infrastructure for society, right? In the same way that a hospital or a pharmaceutical or an energy company would be or, or core financial institutions, right? He wanted to, to do something that would really make an impact on those types of businesses. What he realized was that managing data was the big challenge that they had. So they were building data pipelines, but building the pipelines was really slow and complicated. Maintaining them was really difficult. Debugging them was really hard. Answering questions about them, onboarding new team members, understanding whether they were working or not. He started the Dagster open source project to address these big problems. And the, the fundamental problem was frankly that this is a software engineering discipline, but they didn't have high quality software engineering tools to solve these problems. And so he started the Dagster project to do that. A couple years in, he recruited me into the company to be the head of engineering. I managed to stay in that role for about 10 months before he approached me and he said, hey, listen, Pete, I'm a solo founder. We're starting to hit the growth stage here. We have paying customers. We have really rapid growth. I need some help. And so he moved to the CTO role. He really wanted to continue to be leaned in with the customer and really have a huge stamp on the product. And I took over as CEO. That was really my journey to where we are right now. Let's dive into the MVP. And given there's so many components here that 
that you mentioned. I'm curious where it starts, but tell me about you know what would be considered the MVP of Dagster. How long it took to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. Dagster first came to life in 2019. It was announced at this conference called Data Council. It was a normal Python project. So it's written in Python. A lot of data people use Python, so it was a natural language to use to deliver this thing. Originally, it supported very old versions of Python in the 2.0 series. We don't support those anymore. So Apache Airflow is the most popular open source data orchestrator. That's what we call this category of product. Nick and the early team built a, a better version of that. It did fairly basic scheduling of data pipelines. So what that means is you have a data pipeline. It's a series of different tasks that have to occur one after the other. And you have to schedule them on a certain schedule. So you can say, for example, I want the dashboard updated at 9 a.m. Monday morning. So I need to start my pipeline at 4 a.m. the night before. That's the types of things that, that a, a basic orchestrator could do. And so that was the fundamental thing, was like a scheduler that could schedule a series of tasks and retry them when it fails. So let's stay on the MVP for a minute. With any MVP, you're going to make certain decisions and trade-offs around how you're going to build the product, the approaches you're taking, et cetera, things like that. So tell me about some of those trade-offs and those decisions that you had to make and how you coped with those decisions. When you're building a company you've got your MVP of your first product, you start to build additional features and you have to take that MVP mindset and bring those to those additional features as well. With respect to the early versions of, of Dagster, the main goal was to build something that could run a data pipeline in production. So what is the core minimum viable feature set of Airflow? These kind of like scheduling individual tasks. Let's make that work and let's make that supported by software engineering best practices. So it should be easy to test. It should be easy to run on your laptop in development. It should be easy to debug. Really the, the quality bar was I think a bit higher than a normal kind of MVP. And that's because we are fundamentally an infrastructure company. We build infrastructure software. Infrastructure needs to have a certain level of quality before it, it even hits the MVP bar. So in that sense, we were, I think, a little bit slow to get to market, but it was for good reason, because we did have to be rock, kind of rock solid. However, as the companies kind of evolved and we build new features, they are of varying depths in the stack and the stuff that's higher up in the stack. That's a little more like an end user application, a little less like core infrastructure. We can ship much earlier MVPs than that, which has been uh, very exciting. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption and use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. 
Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. Okay, so you got your MVP. It's working. You're gaining traction. How did you progress and mature the product from there? And to wrap that in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is how did you build your roadmap? And how did you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build with Dagster? So in the early days, you find a customer, talk to them, you say, hey, how can we make your life better and build a product that people want? And so in the early days, that's what we did. I thought we built a really great product. The problem with just building a good product is that doesn't necessarily mean it is sufficiently differentiated. One of the challenges that we faced in the early days was everybody was like, yeah, Dagster is the best orchestrator, but it's it's not so good that you should switch from Airflow. And as a venture-backed business, that's not a good thing to hear. A couple years into the project, after we had built that early version that worked really well, we had a core set of design partners that really liked it, and we started to develop some buzz. Did a pretty major product pivot and changed the core programming model, which really influenced how the product evolved over time. And so this was a big bet where we said, listen, everybody is building data pipelines as a sequence of tasks. And that is not how developers think of the problem. They think about what are the end products I'm trying to produce, the end data assets that I'm producing, and then I want to write code that produces those. I don't want to write these black box tasks that do arbitrary computation. And in fact, when I'm debugging a data pipeline, I want to be able to go from the broken data assets, so I go in my dashboard and I see that the numbers don't add up. I need to be able to very quickly go from that to the code that produced it and understand where things went wrong. It was hard to do that with all the incumbent systems, and frankly, it was hard to do that with Dagster too. And so we did a fundamental change to the product that we called software-defined assets, where rather than writing series of tasks, you just write declarative code that describes how to compute and build one of these data assets and connect them together. And so we were able to do that in a way that was incremental, and it was layered on top of what we already had built. It was very successful. Like Within one year, 75% of our customers were using this feature. And it's now the default way that people build with this technology. It also introduces a couple of new challenges as well. First, we made an explicit decision to not necessarily meet developers where they are. We want to lead them to this way of working that we think is better, uh, but is not necessarily match one-to-one to what they're doing today. 
you know, educating people on how to do this is a big problem of ours that we had to solve. And doing all of that stuff that makes it easy for new users to onboard onto this thing. I think one of the things that makes road mapping challenging though, is that there's a lot of knowledge embedded all throughout your organization. I think your frontline support person, they often have the most important perspective on what the problems the business needs to solve are. And I think that there's an important conversation from like the people sitting in the boardroom who understand what the, where the business needs to go strategically and combined with those conversations with the folks that are actually on the front line, talking to customers, waking up and dealing with the pager at night, you have to combine those two bodies of knowledge in, in order to really come up with the best roadmap. And so we ran what I thought was a pretty interesting process and I just called it like caveman planning. I like to think of what is the dumbest thing I can possibly do to solve the problem? And I start with that and I ask myself, hey, does it need to be more complex than this? And so what I said was, listen, we need a roadmap. I'm pretty sure that's just a prioritized list of stuff to do. Why don't we just make a big dumb list of everything we have to do and sort it by priority order and then do those things in that order. And so that's effectively the process that we ran. So step one was we solicited pitches from everyone in the organization. So whether you were the CEO or the founder or the head of product, all the way down to the person who was just hired, who's working on marketing, we received 300 different pitches for projects. We had a template where it was like they would submit one pagers with effort estimation and business impact and justification, stuff like that. The executive team literally sorted all 300 of them. They triaged every single one. We looked at what the, our company goals were, what we took a look at the stuff that, that was pitched, and we assigned a global priority to every single idea that, that came in. Then we ended up with this kind of prioritized list of stuff. And from there, it was very clear what the themes were. And so we were able to like very easily write a narrative about, hey, this is what the company needs to do, and here's why we're doing what we did. So the point was not that we did a full bottoms-up process, and it wasn't like there, was a, there wasn't a vision applied to it in a top-down strategy. We actually started with that. We had a vision, we had objectives, but this important element of like bringing in the whole knowledge of the entire company, and also, frankly, we brought in external people too. We have a user council, we ran it by them as well. It's created a lot of clarity, a lot of focus. Prioritization decisions are trivial. And from my point of view, it's a very exciting roadmap. And it's so exciting to the point where we actually shared it out publicly. It was a lot of work to sort all that stuff, but it was a great result in the end. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell Edge Functions or Cloudflare Workers, you should put your data there too, in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite in a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for Code Story listeners. Head over to terso.tech slash codestory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it 
with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud cost, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. So let's flip to scalability then. And this will be interesting given what you're building. Did you build this with scale in mind or to scale in the beginning? Or have you been fighting this as you grow and gain traction in any sort of capacity? And that could be technology, it could be organization, it could be a lot of things. So I'm curious what you'll say there. But talk to me about how you approach scalability. I believe in not getting big. When I joined Facebook, it was like a thousand people. And then when I left, it was like 20,000 people. So I've seen kind of growth like that as well. And I think a lot of companies, the alignment of incentives between the individuals, so the individual contributors and the managers and the company is not necessarily perfect. And so sometimes you get organizations that feel like the, the people in them feel like the organizations need to get bigger in order for them to progress in their careers. But actually the company wants as few people as possible to do the job, not, not even just because of gross margins or the, the, the burn rate, but just like communication and alignment and maintain the culture and all sorts of stuff starts to break. A lot of the decisions that you should be making as a leader are how can we avoid growing as long as possible in terms of headcount? What tools can we put in place? What processes can we put in place? What processes can we actually get rid of? We are growing. We did raise our Series B this year. Uh, we did do some hiring, but it was not crazy. We were going from 35 to 50 this year. It's not like super ultra hyper growth the way other organizations uh, have done it. But with respect to scaling the product, I think it's important to have design partners who will push you. And so there is no, no replacement for actual production usage of your product at scale. And so we were fortunate to have a customer early on. One of our first enterprise deals we signed was with a giant company and they've got hundreds of, of seats and they're, they've got tens of thousands of data pipelines. And they're, they really pushed the system. They were a great partner. They were patient. And we worked out a lot of the kinks with them. And frankly, I just think that is how most early stage startups do it. My, my last company scaled. I, I remember it because there was a, a, a long weekend and we had like three customers in a row go to production. We went from like tens of thousands of users to like tens of millions in the span of a couple of days. And so scalability is something that I know really well. I think that you need to think about the failure cases and say, okay, there's a lot of unknown unknowns here. What happens if something unknown breaks? How do we deal with that failure? How do we avoid losing data? How do we avoid slowing down the customer? And so just building those basic circuit breakers in early is something that is not that hard to do and will really save you in a production situation. Nowadays, we do basically stress testing before we launch products. We basically instrument the new feature. So we figure out, okay, what is the SLA going to be? How are we going to measure that? And then we just stress the system and see where it breaks. And if it breaks at a sufficiently high load, we are happy with it and we ship it. And if it doesn't, we optimize until we feel like it's at a, a point where it will handle our customer scale. Things start out very reactive. You get that design partner, they push you, you react to the breakages that they find. 
But then over time, as the startup matures, you try to get more proactive about stuff and you know, do a proactive load test or whatever the equivalent is in your domain to get ahead of that stuff. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? You like to tell people that we want this to be the place where they can do the best work of their career and look back and be really proud of what they did. And people take pride in their work. They, they move fast. We, we are a startup with extremely high standards. We have high standards for quality. We have high standards for velocity. We actually uh, don't believe that there is, in practice, much of a velocity versus quality trade-off in most situations. You can get really good at your job and not have to make that trade-off as often as other places. And so we ask people to be great at what they do. One of our values is respecting the craft and executing with ambition. That's what we're talking about. Another one of our values is be human. We are a company that is like run by adults and real people. I think the chaos factor here is a little lower than at other startups because you've got some steady hands on the wheel, right? And a lot of our senior leadership here, not just on the executive team, but also like our individual contributors, we have way more staff plus engineers at this company than we have any right to have. The engineering maturity and rigor combined with that startup hunger and and tenacity, I think is really what defines what we do. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I had just joined the company. We were about to launch our product to general availability into 1.0. We have this kind of hybrid architecture where part of our system is cloud hosted and part of it is actually on-prem where you run your own agent. And there's no, there, at the time there was no plan for a fully hosted version. And I felt very strongly that this should be a fully hosted version. And we ended up kind of six weeks before we were going to ship our product, we decided to add a fully hosted version of the product. This is like a super crazy thing to, to do. We called it Daxter Cloud Serverless. And if you think about all of the challenges here, right? Like first of all, you have to build up build a, a, a branch in your product to support both deployment modalities, right? Then you have to actually be able to run the code safely and securely and, and quickly in your cloud without introducing a bunch of security problems. And then you have to deal with abuse, right? What if somebody decides to mine Bitcoin with a stolen credit card? And so it just introduced a ton of risk. But I thought that there was a lot of reward. I thought giving people the ability to just click a button and be able to try the product without setting anything up was gonna make our kind of product-led growth motion a lot, a lot more effective. I was able to convince people that we should do that. And so we did it. And that product was a huge success. I just felt like so smart. I come in a couple of weeks with this like amazing insight. And I like, I'm so smart. I was able to, I, I did all this great stuff. And then I had another idea for this thing where we would basically like orchestrate infrastructure. My next brilliant idea was Daxter could configure your ETL tools for you in a similar way to something like Terraform, right? Where you write a Terraform config that says, I want these ETL jobs set up in Fivetran or an Airbyte or whatever the tool is. And then Daxter could like automatically do that for you and sync that with the code running in Daxter. That was something that we spent a lot of time working on and we shipped and it just didn't land with customers. One of our best engineers worked on it for well over a month. 
Fortunately, we shipped it as experimental. It's not like we, we had to support this thing forever, and we actually still do support it right now. But it just didn't really have the level of impact that we thought it would. And I think one of the things that I learned was I'm a big believer in startups requiring a lot of intuition. Like you're often not going to have the scientific data from the user research study to fully inform what you're doing. But I do think it is important to do your best to try to objectively check that your intuition isn't wrong. Take that plan, actually run it by customers before you go and spend two months prototyping this thing. I should have done that much earlier in the process. And that was definitely a mistake that I made and I learned a lot from. Okay, so this will be fun to ask. I always love to hear the passion in the founder's voice. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? First of all, both Nick and I, Nick the founder of CTM and me as the CEO, we really want to take this thing to the finish line. Doing a quick little aqua hire or acquisition or something, it's not really something that either of us is excited about. So we want to go big with this. We want to build an enduring company that makes a huge impact and continues to grow over time all the way to IPO and beyond. And I know that's what you're supposed to say as a CEO of a venture-backed company, but I, I really mean it. I've got like the cred to back it up. I'm very motivated for this thing to, to be big. We want to grow fast, but also sustainably. Like we, we care about building a business that is not just going to get us the next funding round, but will actually be sustainable all the way through to the end. That means having real customers that love your product, that pay you a lot of money, having a product that doesn't fall over when it hits the, the complex use cases. What's that going to look like for the team? It's going to look like measured growth. Like I said, we're growing from, this year we're growing from like 35 to just under 50 people. That pace of growth, I think, feels about right. The culture can absorb that level of growth. We're spinning up new functions right now. That, that requires maybe a little more growth than normal, but measured growth, continuing to maintain the culture that we have, but at the same time, like leveling up our practices where they need to be leveled up. So oftentimes that's in measurement and data and things like that. Uh, but fundamentally, like I don't think the company is going to change a ton in, in terms of culture. We're, we're a remote-first company. We made the decision to stay that way. And that's enabled us to like close incredible hires with incredible velocity. And it's just been amazing. With respect to the product, I actually published a blog post a couple of months ago called the Dagster Master Plan. And we're basically following that playbook, right? We've built what's called a data orchestrator. You can build data pipelines. You can ship, you can ship them to production. You can monitor them. You can debug them with this thing. You can schedule them. These things can throw off a lot of metadata. And so starting to leverage that metadata more is something that we're really excited about. We talk about upcoming cost management features so we can tell you, for example, hey, this pipeline owned by the marketing team, it's spending three times as much money this week as it did last week on Snowflake. You might want to go check out what's going on there. This is a problem that every data team has, especially in years like 2023, where budgets are tight, consumption-based pricing is here to stay, and teams can very easily spend a lot of money on these things. Being able to manage costs is something that we're building in the product. 
data quality is another thing that people have been asking for. It's not just running your pipelines and making sure that they stay on time, but also making sure that they are producing data that passes quality checks. Does this data have any nulls in it? Does this have the right number of rows? Data quality checks like that, that, that are really important to making sure that you do have this high quality data that you can depend on. Over time, we're just going to continue to leverage that, right? Like I like to say there's a data graph within an organization. There's all these different data assets. We want to make sure that we grow that graph as wide as possible so we capture all the data in the company and we can have it on a single pane of glass, as they say in enterprise software. And we also want to make sure that we have sufficient depth, too, so that each node in that graph, that each data asset we understand at a very deep level what's in that data, where does it live, who owns it, is it up to date, is it passing its quality checks, how much does it cost to produce, how is that trending over time. All that stuff is very core to what we do and is, is certainly what we're excited to, to be shipping over the next uh, one to two years. So let's switch to you, Pete. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something that you look up to and why. I got into computers because I saw it's like a made-for-TV movie about Bill Gates when I was a kid. I thought that was really cool. I definitely was like a kid that liked computers. I don't think being a computer nerd has ever been cool, but it certainly wasn't back in the 90s. And I thought it was really neat that like somebody could become very wealthy and famous and ostensibly happy by just being really smart and doing cool stuff with computers. I thought that was really great. So got to include Mr. Gates in there as one of my early influences. I think there's this good book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits is useful for getting your homework done or getting in shape or personal habits like that, right? What I think is interesting about it is you can actually apply it to, to organizations. And so I think that organizations are made up of people and they behave like people. You can have the best strategy in the world, but if you don't build habits within your organization, you're not going to execute on the strategy. So how many times have leaders gone to the end of the quarter and um, realized they didn't do what they intended to do? Or they go ask a random person in the company, hey, what are you working on? And they're working on something that's like totally misaligned with what the company actually needs to do. Right. That is, I think, a failure to build the right habits and alignment in the organization in order to execute. So anytime somebody wants to do anything, institute a process, institute any sort of organizational change, I say, what is the ritual? What is the habit we're going to build that enforces this? A great example is determining company values. Our, our ops team came to me and said, hey, we think we should really have company values that are written on the wall and that we can communicate to the organization. It's going to be very important when we scale. And I have done these values exercises at so many different companies in so many different contexts. And almost every single time you do a values exercise, like you come up with this document and you throw it in the trash. Like it, it, it's on the company wiki and you hear about it during onboarding and then you never hear about it again, right? This is a very common thing. Uh, and for the amount of effort that like startups spend on these values, it's like ridiculous. And so I think it's important to build habits to support that. So at our company, we have an all hands every two weeks and we ask for shout outs and shout outs have to be tied to a value. Part of our performance review process is a section about values alignment. What values does this person live? How do they live them? Give specific examples. So I love thinking about companies in terms of habits. And I think that you hear that tactics eat strategy for breakfast or culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think this is a great example of that. Well, last question, Pete. So 
you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? The first one is work hard, put in the hours, put in the time, do things that don't scale. It's a famous Paul Graham quote. There's an essay about it. You should read it. It's great. I think that there are a lot of people out there that will really push the work-life balance thing to a degree that is harmful. I think there are a lot of people, myself included, they love building stuff. It's what they want to do. They want to work hard and they can have a, a disproportionately huge outcome by just working really hard at the right moment. And I would basically go, I would say, yeah, don't be afraid to work hard. In fact, you should work hard. I would give two counterpoints to that advice as well, or two caveats maybe. Caveat number one is don't stress out a lot. One of the advantages of being a second time CEO is that I'm way more relaxed about things. Everything was a crisis the first time around. Every time there was a new challenge, it was existential. This time, here's a spectrum of possibilities for what could happen. None of them are gonna kill the company, we'll be fine. It lets you stay much more level-headed and clear-headed, and I think that's really important. And the other caveat is I would basically not let, not let it 100% consume your life. You can put most of your eggs in the startup basket, but not all of them. You want to make sure that you're continuing to have a robust network of friends and family. Call your mother or whoever it is. Be a good family member. Keep that part of your life going really strong. There are a lot of startup founders that just let their let their the rest of their life fall apart or they get really unhealthy. That's really bad. It doesn't have to be a lot of work. Just take your Sunday afternoons, go to the gym, call your family and friends, you know, that kind of thing. I'm sure there are other things too. Try to go to market earlier than you think. Hire sales before you think you need it. Those sorts of things. But really, I, I do think that at the end of the day, it's about working really hard, but also making sure that it's not 100% of your life. I think that's fantastic advice. Well, Pete, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Dagster. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.